Let's uh, open with the word of prayer and we'll jump into our lesson tonight. Heavenly Father, you are a great and mighty God. There is no other God besides you. Though men pretend all across the world that there are other gods, there, there are none. And it is amazing that you've revealed yourself as you have in your holy scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Trinity. And we praise you and thank you for your otherness and your graciousness and your kindness and your mercy that is just so lavished upon us and so demonstrated in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he wrought for us according to your good purpose and plan and your will. Praise you. And we thank you for it. And we look forward, Lord, I, I do look forward to going through this lesson together and looking at Christ and hopefully seeing him uh, more fully, uh, more completely, as we try to grasp with our limited and mortal minds the infinite God. Uh, it's a task that we can never fully do, but Lord, I just pray that uh, you'd give us grace in that endeavor, at least tonight, to grasp Christ and see him uh, more completely. Lord, we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so tonight we're, we're dealing with Christology. That's the fancy theological term. <laughs> dealing with the, the doctrines uh, regarding Christ. We're going to mainly focus in, in about three, on three parts tonight. I quickly, for the first half or so, want to go through, I think, what most of us already know or are probably familiar with, uh, dealing with Christ's humanity. And then, uh, the second part dealing with his deity. And then I'd like to spend somewhere between the half to a third of the lesson tonight just looking at some of the historical teachings, uh, errors, teaching about Christ and his humanity, and just kind of deal with those and try to think through those. And based upon what we looked at, the scripture says, and just apply that to some of those historical controversies that happened. And um, look at a couple of the uh, statements and creeds of the faith and how they help us summarize the truth of the scripture and help us have a right um, thinking about who Christ is as the God-man, as God incarnate. So that's that's what I want to do tonight, and it's kind of a brief introduction. And um, I hope that, you know, as we do this, that you'll be reminded of things that you know, perhaps maybe sharpened a little bit, uh, grounded a little bit more in your understanding of who Christ is, because false Understandings of who Christ is, Christ is is all around us. Uh, false religions have their claim of who he is, uh, but we want to know who he truly is as God has revealed him and how he revealed himself in the scriptures. So um, if you go to the chat, you can grab the handout. Um, I left lots of scripture verses in there. We're not going to look at them all. There's just no way. Um, there's just so much here. And um, I think Tim reposted that for you guys. It's great. Um, if you can grab that, it'd be awesome. If you don't have access to it because maybe you're on a phone or something and you want me to email it to you later, just shoot me an email. I can send it to you. It's got a lot of great uh, information and resources. But when we talk about the humanity of Christ, I think um, we have to start with the virgin birth. Uh, God became man. How did that happen? Um, if you look at Luke 135. I'm going to turn there myself as well. Luke 135. 
It's just one verse of many that deal with the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. So let's do there. Luke one thirty five. And the angel answered her, that would be Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we have something here that's it's a singularity in all of history, right? It's the only time this has ever happened. God became flesh, and he did so through a mechanism we don't understand. God doesn't explain how he did it at them at the uh, in Mary's womb, but he says that's where he did it. So virgin birth. And what's what's interesting about their virgin birth is um, it is something that's affirmed, obviously it's prophesied in the Old Testament, but it's also affirmed over and over again in the New Testament. And in fact it's a key um, piece of the puzzle for Christ who ultimately is our representative uh, before God in living a perfect life, living the life we could not live, and ultimately earning the salvation we could never uh, earn by his death, burial, and resurrection, is that he becomes a truly and completely a man. He's not, doesn't look like a man. It's not that he is a man. It's not some pretense, but it actually is real. And in the book of Galatians, Paul affirms this as well, uh, that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So there's this implication that there's necessity that he be born a man. And this also fulfills the the prophecy all the way back in the book of Genesis, right? That the seed of the woman would come and, and crush Satan's head. Um, a seed of a woman. And there's been sermons on that. I don't want to focus too much on this. Just kind of highlight these things. So the virgin birth. Um, somehow this virgin birth separates uh, Christ from that um, that sinful heritage that was passed on by Adam to all of his progeny, which we are. Somehow that, that virgin birth, and the Bible doesn't explain that, but somehow that separates Christ from, from that. So that's important as well, right? That Jesus is sinless when he's conceived all the way and forever, right? He never, never is sinful. But it also means that Jesus had, because he was full human, uh, he had human weaknesses and and limitations. And that's because he was born just like the rest of us, right? And the Bible teach, that's the, another importance of that um, virgin birth. What's interesting, too, is he grew up like all the rest of us have grown up, right? Grew up from a baby, right? We see in the book of Luke, especially, where he grows up, right? He learns. Um, he increases in wisdom and in knowledge. We, we know from some of the stories that we can bring to mind, Jesus gets tired. He gets weary, right? He's just like, in that regard, he's like us. Uh, he gets hungry and we know he gets thirsty. Uh, and he was capable of dying. As a human, he was capable of dying. And life's, and also he, when he arose again, he was resurrected in a bodily form, right? So he had a human body, right? What's interesting is if you look at uh, 
Acts 1. Why don't you flick over to Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. Can I get someone to, uh, to read that for me? Acts 1, 9 through 11. I can read it. Great. Thank you. Pull it up. All right. Acts 1, 9 to 11. Sorry, I'm using Bible Gateway, and I pulled it up on the wrong one. <laughs> oh, well, it's going to be the NIV is what it pulled up for me, so hopefully that doesn't matter too much. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Yeah, so here you have the resurrected Christ. We know he has a physical body there. He eats fish. He says, touch me, feel me, right? So here he is, the resurrected man, human, Christ, going to be coming back in the same way. He's going to retain that human body is the implication here from that passage. So not only does he get conceived in the womb of Mary and grow and become a man and then and live that whole sinful, sinless life. But he also dies and is resurrected into a resurrected human body. It's the same body he died in. And then he's living in heaven right now in that body and he'll return with that body. So he continues to exist as a, as a human. That's him, just in this case, a glorified resurrected one. Uh, what's another uh, implication to Christ's humanity is that he had a, a human mind. And we see this. It's, it's hard to understand how a God who knows everything can learn something, but the scripture says that he did. Luke is very clear. He says that he increased in wisdom. How does the God who know everything do that? Well, he had a human mind. The human part of him was learning, growing. He also learned obedience according to Hebrews 5.8. He learned obedience. He actually, like we see in the book of Luke as well, he submitted himself to his parents, his earthly parents, whom whom he's holding up by the power of his will, holding together their existence. He also submits to them and is obedient to them. So he had a human mind. And there's a, a passage here, which I've read a little bit about, and I've heard sermons about, and maybe you as well, where Jesus is talking about events yet to come and, as the disciples say, you know, when, when are all these things going to take place? And he says, well, he doesn't know the specific day or hour, but he knows that they're coming. And so there's, on a human level, there's some limitation, right? But this is the God who knows everything, but he's in the flesh. And so on the, the human aspect, he doesn't know everything. And yet, we see in other places that he knows the hearts of men. So he, he knows things that a normal person wouldn't know. Yet at some point, he's limited. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. But we're looking mostly at this aspect that he is truly human. He has limited faculties just like we do on the human level. Also, he had a human soul and emotions. We see this where um, Jesus wept over Lazarus, right? Um, in the garden, he just, he prayed. He was in anguish such that he was... He felt like he was sorrowful unto death, is how he describes it, right? The book of Matthew. 
and he's troubled in his soul, right? There's these, these phrases that we see in the book of John. Hebrews uh, 5, 7 says that he prayed with cries and tears. Just You see this human emotion coming out of our Savior. And then um, <clears throat> what's interesting, too, is in Hebrews 5, uh, 4, 15, it's, it says this. Um, it says that Christ faced temptation, right? Let me, let me look it up here. Hebrews 4.15. Right? For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's a way in which Christ as the human is being tempted. And yet we know that this is, Emmanuel, this is God with us, and we have to also affirm at the same time what James 1.13 says, that God cannot be tempted by evil. So we have this human side of Jesus who is being tempted, and he's being tempted as we are, right? as a human would be tempted. And what I think is another clear example of Christ's humanity is that other people who were near him and knew him only saw him as a man. Um, I think this is uh, very nicely pointed out in Mark 3, 21. For the sake of time, we won't turn there, but it's there that his family thinks he is out of his mind, right? He's got crowds around him. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. It's so crowded that he can't basically even get any rest. And they're thinking he's out of his mind. And they go to get Jesus, and this is the, you might remember this story where the, the four men bring the paralytic, right? He's stuck in the house. There are so many people, they can't get in through the front door, right? They have to go through the roof. His family comes to, to get him out of this situation because he's out of his mind, right? They see him only as a human being. Also, his whole t- hometown rejected him as a prophet. They just saw him as the carpenter's son, right? Aren't his brothers and his sister and his mom, aren't, aren't they all here, Right? They just saw him as a regular, regular man. And, and yet, in his humanity, he was sinless. He was sinless. And I'd like to turn to 1 Peter 2 and look at three verses there, verses 21. Well, I guess it's four verses, 21, 22, 23, and 24. So 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. Who could read that for us? I have that here, I think. Okay. Um, Let me know if I'm reading in the wrong place. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, let's see, was it through 24? 24, please. Okay. He's, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Yeah, so we have a, a lot said in these verses. Mm. Just dealing with sinlessness, if you looked at verse 22 specifically, and also into verse 23, but... 
Peter just says very plainly, he committed no sin. That's That sums up Christ's life in short, right? And there are a lot of passages that deal with that. I have them in your handout. We're not going to look at them, but they're there. Christ did not sin. He was born as a human. He lived a life as a human. He is human, right? He's the God-man, so he is human, but he was sinless. He was the only perfect human being that has ever existed. Because even, even Adam and Eve didn't make it very far until they sinned, right? What's interesting to note is I think we, we see Christ as the, as the odd one out, right? He's the only one who's sinless. And I, in one of the systematic theologies, I think is Wayne Grudem that I was reading, he pointed out that Christ is actually who we're supposed to be, right? God made us sinless. Uh, we have transgressed that, uh, transgressed God's law, but Christ every moment of every day, from the moment of conception to his death, burial, and resurrection, and for all eternity, he's completed, only done what God has wanted him to do. He's always fulfilled God's righteous requirements. So he was sinless. So just to ask a question there, it's the bottom of the first page of your notes. Why was Jesus's full humanity, whole, full humanity necessary? And the answers actually are found here in this first Peter passage that we looked at. Throw out some answers. Well, for one thing, um, it says Christ in verse 21 suffered for you, leaving you an example. So you might follow in his steps. So um, if you were other, if you were other than us, that would be a meaningless example. And we could, we could argue, well, how could we possibly find an example in one who is not one of us? Right. Oh, exactly. I mean, if, if Jesus was a superhero like Thor or something, or I don't know, you just pick your superhero in your mind, Superman. All right, now you stop a bullet too, <laughs> right? It's not going to happen. So it's really important that Jesus is like us in every respect, right? He has a mind like us. He has a will like us. He has physical weaknesses like us, right? He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets tempted by things around him, and yet he always does what is right. Yeah, so he's an example to us. What else there? There's there's more. How about especially in verse 24? He bore our oh. sins in his body on the cross. Right. He bore our sins in his body, right? He had to have a body to bear our sins, right? To be in our place, right? It's pointing to the substitutionary um, aspect of our salvation that Christ took our place. He can't take our place unless he is like us. In every respect is what book of Hebrews said, right? He was made like us in every respect. And that becomes an important, important thing as we uh, continue to, to move ahead here. And we can look at other pla- places where he just, you know, he's the pattern of our redeemed bodies because when we get resurrected, we're going to be like him in some way. We don't know how that all works. <laughs> There's not a lot of full pictures here sometimes, but it's definitely be better than what we've got for sure. He's also a sympathetic high priest. Right? There's a lot of reasons that he be, he becomes a man. There's more. Um, but we don't have time for it. Let's move on to the deity. I just want to kind of highlight those things about, about Christ. So deity. So we're talking about the God man. So we talked about the man part. Let's talk about the God part. Um, what's interesting is 
there are direct scriptural claims that Jesus is God, right? This isn't a kind of a fuzzy thing in the scriptures. It's like, well, we, we think this is what's the case. No, no, scripture is very clear, right? Uh, some of the most famous there in, in John 1, 1, Jesus, you know, the word who is Jesus is God and he was God. And um, we see it throughout um, the New Testament that Jesus is called God. I guess the Greek word is theos there, right? But sometimes Jesus is called Lord, which is a different word, uh, sometimes pointing to his deity. Um, I think there are places where it, it might actually be just a respectful term <laughs> where people come up to him and say, Lord, uh, like, uh, can you do this for me? Kind of just treating him as a, uh, a earthly authority. But much of the New Testament uses it in a very strong sense. I think I left that in your notes strong sense where it's actually pointing to God. And where we see this is that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, um, they use the word kurios to translate um, it, where the Hebrew term Yahweh would have been, right? And that's L-O-R-D in our all caps in our English translations of the Old Testament, right? This is the covenant name of God. This is um, God the Father, God the Son, they're Yahweh, right? And what's interesting is in Matthew 3, 3, um, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 43. And it really, it, it points to Jesus being Yahweh. And there's other places where the New Testament does this. I just always thought this is a fun one. Um, so go, go to Matthew 3, 3 is to start. Matthew 3, 3. So turn there. And then we'll be turning to Isaiah 40, verse 3 as well. So John the, John the Baptist is being introduced here by, by Matthew. And then in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says this. For this is what, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So he's speaking of John. That's the voice one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that Lord there in Greek is the curios. But if you go all the way back to Isaiah, it's Yahweh. Make his paths straight. So we see here that John is the one coming before Christ. And if we correlate that with, with Isaiah 40 verse 3, We see that a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of prepare the way of Yahweh. Right? So here Matthew's harkening back to Isaiah and saying, This one that's coming after John, which is Jesus, is Yahweh. So again, there's this happens um, in places throughout the New Testament. Hey, hey, Daniel, just want to let you know, there's, there's a hand up. Dave Abrams got a, his hand up here for, so just whenever there's a good time for you. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't see that. <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> Who's uh, uh, sorry, I'd rather uh, let you continue on. Um, uh, let, let me uh, chime in at the end of this, because uh, you said some stuff earlier that I'm like. Uh, oh, yeah. Maybe we'll answer yeah, your question. I got some personal on. stuff on that. Um Okay. Relate, but keep going, man. You're doing right. great. Yeah, so 
just I just always thought that's just a neat one. There's other places where the New Testament will quote Old Testament passages that are clearly speaking of Yahweh and they apply it to Christ. So this happens more than once. This isn't accidental. This isn't a one-time thing in Matthew. Also, uh, Jesus claims to be in the book of Revelation, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. These are clearly deity claims. Um, he calls himself the son of man, um, hearkening back to Daniel 7, and that son of man has an eternal throne. Again, a, another claim to deity. He's also called the son of God all throughout the uh, New Testament. We could go on and on and on. But we just I just want to bring that to mind. I'm not, I don't want to, we're not studying that specifically. I want to get further in here and look at some of why this is important. Again, we also have divine attributes, which we see all throughout the New Testament. I, I have the passages there for you and some of these things. We've got omnipotence. We see Christ being, he knows what's going on in people's, uh, uh, he has the power to over the wind and the waves and, and all that, right? Uh, he's eternal, right? Before Abraham was, I am, it says in John, in John there. Um, omniscient, right? He knows what's going on in people's minds, what's going to happen in the future. And he even says in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, right? This is the post-resurrected Christ, but he's he's everywhere, right? This is, he, he is going to be present with, with the disciples wherever they are. Sovereignty. This is interesting, just looking at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus doesn't say like the Old Testament prophets, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you, he claims the authority of God to direct people's lives and give them direction and commands. Immortality, he has the power to lay down his life and bring it up again. Hebrews 7, 16 says he has it. Um, indestructible life is the, the phrase there. But ultimately, we see that Christ, in summary, is fully divine. And then Colossians speaks to that. Now, for the sake of time, we're to just leave those passages where they are, right? But in him, the fullness of deity dwells, right? I was looking at these divine attributes, and I don't know, are there any that pop into your mind as you're thinking about as we've, in the past, we've looked at divine attributes. Are there any divine attributes that aren't listed here? I was just wondering, maybe just looking over that brief list, if there's like, we're missing one on this list. Any, any jump out at you? Now, I had the advantage, I have to say, of looking at this four or five times before you guys did. Um, <laughs> but one that actually popped out to me as I was looking at this at the third or fourth time, kind of reviewing this, and I was like, you know, the divine attribute of love is not listed here. Um, right? He loved his own to the very end. I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, there's a passage we go, I just, I haven't even looked those up, but that just popped in my head. Um, if I, If I may... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, earlier, so, uh, some things uh, that you were saying, Daniel, um, of like, what was the whole point of, you know, God sending his son down to earth and, and just the verses that you put forth and whatnot. Um, <sighs> for me, I think the whole purpose is that it's like, God sent his only son. He, 
and Jesus spent his time in this world. He, he dealt with all of the stuff that we think are problems and this and this and that and the other. But, I mean, at the same time, he was a good wood, car- uh, wood carpenter, apparently, um, to give us those lessons of, hey, I came down to earth. I gave you guys an example of how to live. Um, I spent time amongst you. My father sent me to give you an example so that we can put it down in the books. And eons later, um, y'all can read back and draw inspiration and go, oh, so this is how I'm supposed to live life. And (laughs) check yourself and go, what am I doing wrong with myself? <laughs> well, I don't think, yeah. Am I edifying the body of Christ or am I just being selfish and taking care of my own house? Like uh, Pastor Tim's Haggai uh, last Sunday. Um, sure. That one really hit me of like, are you taking care of yourself or are you edifying the body of Christ? And I think all the examples that the Bible gives us, and God sending his son um, in human form to live amongst us and and be like, yeah, I see your problems and your struggles, um, but there's a better way. Let me show you how. Mm-hmm. And we have inspiration and hope and, and a, a promise and a blessing. <laughs> so I can't thank you, uh, the Lord God uh, above for all of that. <laughs> No, I think I think you're you're right in pointing out a lot of that stuff. I think the one one thing that's that's so important is that Christ came not just as an example, because there are there are false religions that believe that Christ is a good example. Um, oh yeah, he's a good man, he's a good prophet, or whatever. But the reality is is that he came to live a perfect life and then die as a perfect sacrifice in our place. And without that, it's really another example. We don't need another just only an example. We need a savior. And that's what was important. That's what he did for us. And I think we can't, uh, and we can't have a savior unless he was like us. That was so important. If I didn't highlight that well enough on that. um, And I don't mean to knock on other religions, but every time I talk with a Jewish person, it's like, oh, we believe Jesus was a good guy and he had some good stuff going on. But, uh, (laughs) Uh, and then the conversation just falls off from there. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting. You were, you were pointing back to, you know, why was it necessary for Christ to be human? Um, and at the same time, we just briefly, just, you know, so very fast, just looked at, you know, Christ and his deity, some of his divine attributes. Well, why is it important that Christ was deity? I mean, if he wasn't, who would save him? <laughs> if he wasn't deity, yeah. If he was fully human. Sorry, you're getting, getting into the fact, uh, to the idea that um, as God, he could be perfect. Is that what you're trying to or It's sure. kind of a brain-stopping question. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> If he came to save us and he were just one of us, how would he do it? 
Maybe it's just another brain-stopping question. Right. Yeah. Would it even yeah. been possible, right, yeah. without him being gone? Yeah, um, it's kind of the other side of the coin from what we were talking about First Peter 2 and about how, um, you know, how could he be a substitute if he wasn't a man? Um, in his what, a, a catechism that he wrote, Matthew Henry, old old uh, pastor, said, you know, one of the questions is, was he man that he might suffer? And then, yes. And was he God that he might satisfy? And so there's that sense of he, he couldn't, he couldn't, um, truly suffer as one of us if he weren't a man, but his suffering wouldn't be sufficient to pay the price for all of our sin if he weren't God also. I think others have made that point, Anselm and others, but it's a, you know, it's like he has to, he couldn't be anything less than fully God and man to do the work he did. Right. And that's the wonderful thing. Like the, there's also an aspect too with the, the divine side preserving and protecting the human side from all the weaknesses of the human at the same time, um, there's the, there's a subject that I debated uh, looking into, which is the impeccability of Christ, which is his ability to sin or not sin and all that. But there's this interaction where you have this reality that though man can be tempted, God can't sin, and so Christ will, will not sin. Um, Daniel, also, this is Smokey. Yeah. Um, one thing, by the way, that Dave remarked uh, in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, that shows both Christ's um, example and then this whole topic of his deity, humanity, and exaltation all there in this Mm -hmm. incredible passage. But I was going to say that um, I I think one of the, the remarks was how is it necessary for Christ to be deity? Um, I think another approach is, isn't that how is it necessary, but the fact that Christ's deity is completely undetermined by us, it's simply a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at the second person of the Trinity and not really figuring out why he had to be deity in order to save us as much as he is deity. And there's a, a plan that he has now, obviously this whole um, arena of Christ deity and humanity is something that we talking about. But the point is it's, it's, I'm just saying this is a, an established reality that, that um, we don't, we don't um, enter into as much as it enters into our lives, I guess. Um, no, that, that is true. We're just observing the facts. <laughs> yeah. The it's Christ is, is who he is and yeah. irrespective of um, a discussion, even of salvation. Right. This is almighty God. Um, one of the three persons. In the big scheme of things, we're just a bunch of idiots trying to figure it out. <laughs> we do have limited capacities for sure. And one one way too, maybe Smokey's point's good. It's not like it was somebody's you know designed to make him divine. It's just who he is. But maybe we could say, why could nobody but the divine Christ, united to humanity, do what Christ mm-hmm. did, or something like that? Yeah, yeah, it's that's a good point. Better stated. It's like mm-hmm. a catechism, Tim. Go for it. <laughs> 
But the answer to that is kind of like there was no other way it could work. <laughs> right. Right. You can, I, one one uh, commentator I was reading, he was asking, well, so Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. How else could it have happened? <laughs> you know, we don't know. That is the way it happened. That goes to back to Smokey's point. This is the way it happened. He came, you know, as a man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died as a perfect substitute, rose again, you know, earning our salvation, and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father until all enemies are made a footstool for him, and then he'll return and uh, rule in this world. So I guess the simple answer, I like Smokey's answer. Uh, It's just the way it is. (laughs) Who else could bear the wrath of God and live? Right. right, and that isn't to make it over simplistic. It's no, more, no. In, in fact, it is. It is interesting. The Lord's doing. There are some things I think that, as the God Man, uh, that Jesus um, is obviously perfect for. He, as our mediator between God and man, He's perfectly positioned in that regard. He's both God and man. Um, also, salvation is of the Lord, and here He is working the salvation out of His own will and accord, laying down His life. Uh, for us and on our behalf. Um, and uh, I, I will say uh, kudos uh, to Timothy, uh, or excuse me, Tim, uh, Tim um, for your sermon this morning. Uh, you mentioned about songs, and, um, you know, there's stuff that, that you like. Maybe it's not biblical-based, what have you, but for anybody, they only play this song, like, around Christmas time, but here with us um, by uh, Hope, um, I forget the artist's name, but there's a line in there that says, um, even Mary had to rock her savior to sleep. And boy, that just, that just lays me out of going like, imagine like Mary, like, this is the savior of the world, God's son. And I still got to be like, no, please stop crying. Come on. It's all right. You know, let me put you to sleep in this barn. Like humbled, just, mm. so I encourage everybody to listen to it. Right. Right. Well, that, that, uh, the incarnation of Christ is the humility of Christ. He had to become less by putting on flesh. All right, so those are just some a quick, quick, brief humanity deity of Christ. And what I'd like to do with our remaining time is look at um, four wrong or in, <laughs> I would say wrong, wrong views that would be stronger. One of the, I was, Wayne Grudem calls them inadequate views. It's too nice of a word. Inadequate is too, too nice. If these are wrong views of Christ, of the person of Christ, um, that are dealing with his deity and his humanity, kind of wrestling with some of the theological things that people, errors that people might go down one way or another. Um, so the, I'm actually going to put up a slide set. I, I actually, I got to figure out how to do this. Let's see. Uh, yeah. So it's the, it's going to be a green share screen button. Yeah, there we go. Boom. We go. Let's see. And if I do, uh, let's see, you can see my screen now and then I can gotcha. do it. Gotcha. It's coming up. Boom. All right. So <clears throat> you also have theology. <laughs> yeah, Christology. That's what we've been looking at is the deity and humanity of Christ. So I'd like to uh, 
you know, just first look at the Nicene Creed and really just talk about Arianism just a little bit. Um, this is a, a belief that was popularized or at least pushed for by um, a gentleman named Arius all the way back in the early fourth century. So we're going way back. Um, and Arius taught that God, the son was at one point created by God. Um, and therefore there was a time when the son didn't exist, um, which has a problem because one of the definitional things for God is that he always is, he's always existed, right? So if Jesus isn't that, then he's not like the father. He's not the same as the father. Um, Arius also taught that the Holy Spirit was something that also came into existence at some point. Um, <clears throat> so, therefore, the Son was, the Son of Christ was considered just a heavenly being. Yes, maybe God used him to create everything, but somehow he's lesser than God, ultimately. Right? And so, though Jesus might be like the Father or similar to the Father, Arius's view that he can't be of the same nature. He can't be the same as the father. And this was a, a problem that um, came, came up in the early church. And, you know, perhaps you would uh, want, maybe want to understand where, where Arius got this idea. If you go to John 1.14, go to John 1.14. John 1.14. And what's interesting, well, I'll read it here first in the ESV. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our modern translations, actually, like the ESV, um, try to help us out. Um, but let me, let me change this over to a different translation. chose the wrong one. Uh, <laughs> all right. And here it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Only begotten, right? This phrase, and there's other places where this speaks of Jesus as being only begotten or the firstborn, uh, right? These phrases Arius took as meaning that there, at some point Jesus wasn't, and then God made him. He was begotten at some point. He was firstborn uh, in Colossians. talks about Jesus being firstborn of all creation, right? uh, also firstborn of the church as well, right? So Arius is looking at these things and going, this must mean that Jesus at some point didn't exist, Kind of feel the weight of that argument, right? And yet we look at and we go, but Jesus is God. God has always existed. He can't have ever been created, right? And so this was the struggle. This is what um, the false teaching was, and they're dealing with this. And so what's the answer to, to, to Arius? Well, first of all, let's still look at this, the idea that firstborn and only begotten aren't necessarily time markers, right, necessarily. They can be a description of p 
position of priority, of privilege or preeminence. Um, and there's some examples of this in the Old Testament. Um, the peop- God calls the people of, his, of Israel in Exodus 4.22, he calls them his firstborn. Um, obviously, they weren't, as a people group, they weren't born at one, all at one point. He's just using that as a, as a way to say, show their importance, their privileged status, their favorite status to him. Uh, J- Jacob was considered the firstborn rather than his brother Esau, even though he wasn't the firstborn because he had received the birthright. Right? He, he sold it or he bought it from, from Esau. Right? So the, the birthright, the firstborn status, the only begotten, I mean, Jesus is the only begotten. He's the f- very special one of God, right? He's unique as the only son of God, as the ESV is translated, right? So I think it's best to look at this, and this is how the early church looked at it as well, is that this is a description of position rather than a timeline, a description of a timeline of a point of creation. And so on the slide, in the screen, you should see the Nicene Creed. And in blue is all of the statements regarding Christ. I've underlined the specific phrase, phrases that dealt with this Arianism and spoke against it. It says, we believe, and so they're saying, I believe in the one God, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. But then they're also saying God of God, right? He's light of light, very God of very God, just in case you weren't sure. They're, they're affirming what we've already seen in the scripture that Jesus is God, right? They're just affirming this begotten, not made. That's important, right? It's kind of pointing to that, that this is a position thing. This is a, um, a status thing. This is not as though one is lesser than the other. It's, um, it's, it's about being exalted there, being of one substance. And I put this in your notes. I guess there was, there's two Greek, there was two Greek words, homo, well, homoousius, I think, and homoousius. I don't know. I didn't take Greek yet. Um, anyway, one means the same substance or nature as the Father, and that's the one they put here in the Nicene Creed. And the other what meant just one letter at an I in the middle there, and it means a like substance or like nature of the Father. That's what Arius believed. And the early church said, no. Scripture affirms that Jesus is God. And as we already saw, Jesus is Yahweh. The Father is Yahweh. They're both God. So, Whatever begotten means, only begotten, whatever firstborn means, it can't mean that Jesus was created at one point. So they're affirming what the scriptures are showing us here, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so they go on about his virgin birth and being a man and all that, the things we've already described. So I just thought that was interesting. You have this, you have someone, I think, probably, maybe in at least at the beginning, being at least looking at scriptures going, okay, only begotten. What does that mean? And rather than taking the whole of scripture, they deviated uh, from, from the scripture there. So that's the Nicene Creed. Um, the next one I want to look at briefly is this idea of uh, this teaching of Apollinarianism. And um, uh, this is another bishop in the church. Boy, these bishops can be dangerous. Um, Apollinarius, uh, he was a bishop of Laodicea around uh, 361 AD, so um, a little bit later after um, Arius was around. Um, and he taught that Christ had a human body, but no human mind and spirit. And we talked earlier about Jesus having a mind, a human mind and will, right? He had the emotions and um, 
But here, Apollinarius is saying, no, no, no. Um, and then this diagram here is meant to describe what Apollinarius was, was trying to describe. The human aspect was only the human body. And the divine part provided the mind, the will, the emotions on that side. So Jesus had no human soul and he's had no human spirit. And which is interesting. So you have, you almost have like a divine possession of a human body, essentially. It's kind of what you've got here. And now let's just pretend for a moment that all of us are, we're in uh, the city of Chalcedon, which is, we'll look at a creed that they, uh, um, that they came up with in Chalcedon. Let's pretend we're in Chalcedon. We're part of the, the group of folks there evaluating the teaching of Apollinaris. How would we answer this from what we've, what we've looked at already? How would we go, okay, how can we reject what Apollinaris is teaching? Jesus only had a human body. That was it. No human soul or spirit. But he had a divine nature. So how would we answer? How would we answer this? Think about that for a minute. How would you answer that? How would he be tempted? I can't answer that one because, I mean, like I said, um, God sent his son down to be an example for us, but I never thought about what you just said. I mean, mm-hmm. he never had a, a human soul or what have you. I mean, God sent his only son and he had a direct connection with his dad, you know, God, the father, um, Well, you and know, I, I can that's tell the you. example that that I take of, um, well, when it comes to uh, what we're doing down here on Earth until we get up there, then God sent his son and we have the Bible. And I mean, in, in a roundabout way, that's a different trinity of we have. God sent a son, there's one, the Bible, and third is the example that, that they sent of, here's what we need you guys to do while you're down here on earth um, before you get back to us. So here you go. And we're all just trying to figure it out. <laughs> Daniel, too, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, this, this hybrid is not a person or is not a man, I'll say. Right. This is not a man. So this, in every way, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin, or all the kind of human psychology that you, um, that you noted earlier about him, you know, having the limitations and temptations and all that right. of a man, that, that wouldn't be the case. Right. So if he's not... I mean, Jesus, Jesus was tempted in, in the desert, which, you know, gives us, you know, the example of, hey, when you're tempted, I mean, God, God sent his son and Jesus was in the in the desert and tempted directly by the devil and said, no, no, 
I'm not going to turn a rock in, into water or do this, that, what have you, because my father. So once again, we have an example of how to live. Um, and I, I you also, take my lessons from that. <laughs> yeah. You also see there exactly what we've mentioned before is that in, in James 1, 13, it says that God cannot be tempted. So if Jesus is out there in the desert, it's his humanness that's being tempted, right? And so he must have a human mind. He must have a human will, soul that that's being tempted and yet does not fall. Otherwise, he's not truly being tempted in the scripture. And that's what's another, beautiful another is that God sent his son to be like, I got to put you down on, on the earth and give you the certain uh, susceptibilities that I've created in this world. It's a spiritual battle between the devil and I. And if you don't go through that and we don't tell the stories, then nobody is going to be able to relate to us or take faith. Uh, So here we go, son. I'm so sorry, but... You have to be the sacrificial lamb so that people can relate. And because people are so dumb, this is what it takes. And it's like, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry that you had to be nailed on the cross for us. One thing, Dave, I think you can be encouraged about is Jesus in, well, I forgot what chapter, of course, um, John says, I lay down my life voluntarily. I lay it down on myself and no one, basically saying no one forces me to do it. I came to do this um, mm-hmm. in an eternal plan with the Father and the Spirit um, as God myself. And that's it. There isn't any apology on the Father's part because Christ planned all of this, and I think as I hear the conversation, the the um, Daniel, I think you're you're looking at some of the confessions, right? Did you do Athanasius yet? No, no, I'm not going to be doing that confession, but I'm working through a couple of the false. Uh, Right. These are, Dave, are all messes. That's what I'm saying. We're talking about some of the messes right now. And we're going to get to the right. Chalcedonian. Um, uh, we'll get to some good stuff in we'll a minute. We'll get some good stuff at the, at the end, kind of end with on, on the strong stuff. Um, but yeah, on this one. No, this, no, no uh, thank you, Smokey. I'm going to shut up and let everybody else talk. <laughs> yeah, so one of the key ideas here that kind of counters the Polinarianism, and then we've already addressed some of the others as well, is this. Um, verse in Hebrews 2.17, speaking of Christ, it says, therefore he had to be made, made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and high faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, that's for him being that substitutionary sacrifice that's satisfactory as well. But he had the key phrase there, to be made like his brothers in every respect. So for Jesus to be our savior, he had to be like us. Uh, he had to be fully human, and the Apollinarianism doesn't allow him to be fully human. Moving on to the next one is Nestorianism, and 
this idea here is because they're 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 thinking through how does the human side of Christ, the the man part and the God part, how do they interact? How do they interplay? And uh, the the first one was rejected because it just got rid of the human person altogether. This idea here is the box represents the whole person of Christ, and you actually have two people inside him. You basically have multiple personality disorder here. You have a divine person inside Christ and a human person inside Christ, and they never intermingle according to this idea. Um, and some of the thinking there was that if there was the, if the human ever mixed with the divine somehow, then it'd be less than divine, all this sort of stuff. The problem though is we never see anything in scripture that's like this. In fact, uh, one of the great examples is in Matthew eight twenty three through 27, which is Jesus is asleep in the boat. They're out in the boat and the storm's out there and they're afraid they're going to drown. So you have a tired Jesus, you have a human Jesus who gets up and speaks to the wind and the waves and only God has control over those elements. And so you see the human and the divine working seamlessly. It's, we don't have the scripture saying, um, and, and the divine Jesus said to the earthly Jesus, now speak these words. Now they, they act as the divine and the human act together um, with without any separation between the two in the sense that we don't, we see Jesus acting as one person with two natures in him. And so we would reject this idea that the, the natures are somehow in conflict with him inside, in, inside him. We never see this um, at all, that idea in, in scripture. So we would, uh, uh, along with the uh, early Christians, we would, we would reject this one as well. And then there was this one, um, you take it, oh, I've, I practiced this earlier, but I, I'm going to mess it up now. You take an ism, uh, just say it fast, pretend like I know how to say it. Uh, this idea is that you have the divine nature and the human nature in Christ joined together and make something new, something completely new. And the answer to this is very similar to the answer um, to the second one we looked at, the Polinarianism, is in this case, the man is no longer just a man. He's somehow some sort of demagogue sort of thing, right? He's, he's partly divine and partly human. He's not really divine anymore either because it's mixed up and um, mixed up. And it's no, no longer the same as what it was, right? And so we reject this as well because we see that Jesus remains God just as much as he remains a man. Um, those two things are always true. The scripture reveals that and makes that very clear to us. And so on that level, we, we reject that as well. Um, again, he has to be made like us in every respect so that human nature cannot be destroyed when the divine is joined with it. So somehow he must stay divine and human at the same time. So the solution to the controversy. So after we got down uh, debating all this stuff for you know many days, um, <laughs> in 451, uh, the, there's the Chalcedon- Chalcedonian definition and I'll put that to put that up on the slide as well. It's pretty long, um, but what's interesting, I think, is if as we read through this, you'll you'll see how this addresses some of these falsehoods. And also, if you're thinking about some of the things we talked about, God is looking at His humanity and His deity. Before this, you'll see how these you can see they're going back to Scripture and they're pulling those truths, and then they're speaking against the falsehood. It says, "Here's." A, Here it is. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men 
to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice, as opposed to the, um, in comparison, I mean, to the Nicene Creed, which is about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, this is just related just to Christ. This whole thing is all about dealing with false teaching regarding Christ. The same perfect Godhead and also perfect in manhood, right? So we're the God-man, holding that there. Truly God, truly man. Of the same, of a rational or reasonable soul of the body, right? So he has a mind and he has a body. Co-substantial or of the same substance or nature. That's that homoousius again with the father according to the Godhead. Again, pointing, always tying Christ back to what we see in the scripture. He's God. Um, but also of the same nature with us according to his manhood, right? He's like us. He's a man. In all things like unto us, but without sin, right? We, right? we, we looked at this stuff. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to uh, the Godhead. And in these latter days, um, oops, I lost my spot. I was reading off the page. Uh, in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, right? The mother of God according to the manhood, right? One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. So still affirming those phrases, like he's the only begotten Son, right? To be acknowledged, though, in two natures, right? Inconfusedly, right? So the natures don't come together and form something new. They don't get confused like that. Unchangeably, right? So there still remain human nature and divine nature. Indivisibly, so you can't, in Christ, you can't separate them. You can see the two different natures, but... Just like when he calms the sea, he's a man calming the sea. He's the God-man working there. And inseparably, right? So they work together. And the distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union. And that's what I just said, right? You still see the two natures, even though they're together. But rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and of one subsistence. Again, that's talking about that Nestorianism where you've got two different persons in one body. Um, they're going, no, no, uh, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son and the only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. So you see, they were going back to the scripture. They were looking at what it says about Christ. And they were saying, what does it say about him, as opposed to some of these um, false teachings? I do have a diagram uh, for this. All diagrams in regarding to the Trinity uh, fall short, of course, because it's beyond our human conception. But the divine nature and the human nature are all united in Christ. So, um, <laughs> so that's that. But anyway, the, the whole end of this all is the affirmation of Christ— as fully human and fully God in the one man, Jesus Christ. And that's who he's going to be forevermore to the praise of the Father and his glorious grace. Well, that's all I have for tonight. I have for tonight. And uh, I don't know if there are any, any questions or comments or snide remarks. <laughs> One thing, Dana, just to amplify and agree with your your emphasis of kind of his 
his union of divine and human in one person is an eternal, you know, you even talked about how he ascends into heaven bodily and he's going to return bodily. He's now um, embodied forever. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I was kind of alluding to this in the sermon too this morning, but I think it'd be very easy for us to neglect kind of the physicality of our redemption and our, our eternity. And so to see Christ as, you know, he, he didn't just, take on humanity to get this thing done and then escape physicality for kind of this, this spiritual purity. You know, sometimes those are kind of um, kind of Greek platonic ideas that sometimes what we, we, we might think, but, um, but actually the body is good and the body is part of what's redeemed. And even the physical, the physical earth is redeemed uh, in, in a, in, you know, in the final state, it's, it's kind of a renewed and purified earth. So, um, so anyway, I think it's just a good emphasis there you made. And those, those are fresh in your mind as you were preaching mm-hmm. on that. So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I'll chime in. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much uh, for your share. Um, you uh, kind of put the uh, icing on, on the cake um, between uh, Tim's um, share this morning. And um, I'm still thinking about... Um, last week when uh he went through uh, the first chapter of Haggai and it's like um yeah you can build your own house but really what are you doing to build God's house um and it's like ah boy my hands smell like Clorox and yeah I I, I can clean up my uh bathroom and my kitchen and, and get things in order and whatnot but really what am I doing to help out the body of Christ? Um, and, um, your whole share this evening, uh, icing on the cake, uh, especially after this morning's sermon of, uh, just kind of give me some stuff to think about and be like, Hmm, you know, I can say I'm humble, but, uh, boy, Apparently, there's certain levels of humble, and uh, I just keep drilling down. So, thank you very much, Daniel. Um, you, you've helped me out personally uh, a lot. So, and I hope that uh, everybody else has uh, picked up something else uh, from your share, uh, your share. Excuse me, but thank you very much. Thank you. Praise God, and thank you for the kind words. I had a question um, regarding, um, I guess, some vocabulary or terminology. Okay. Um, That's always dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like Throughout scripture, we see like the two phrases, uh, like son of God and then son of man. And it Mm -hmm. seems almost paradoxically that son of man seems to refer primarily to the divine nature. And then when you see son of God, it seems to refer more to the human side where it's applied. Uh, Do you... Mm -hmm. I'm the son, the term like son of man's I've always um maybe I just need to read oh, yeah. it. But no, I've I, never quite understood like why is it son of man and then those two phrases why does it seem to be backwards? Well I don't I don't know if I can answer the question of why it seems to be backwards, but I mean I I understand what what you mean by that. But in regards to the uh the son of man uh, phrase, because that has always puzzled me, like why is that a, a call to divinity? Um, we can actually look at that if you'd like. 
Um, let me find it in my notes here. I kind of just went zooming past it because time restraints, but um, zoom. <laughs> but if you want to hang on, we we can do it. Um, first, um, from uh, from an off the you know off the point, um, my understanding uh, between Son of Man and Son of God, um, mm-hmm. it it's just a term um, that actually ties in a lot to. Um, your entire uh, share this uh, evening, Daniel, uh, where God sent his son down uh, to give us an example. So the son of God, um, and the son of man, uh, they're one and the same, where it's like the son of man. Okay. You know, Hey, um, God sent his only son down to earth to give us an example of how to live life and what's expected of us. Um, son of God, same thing. Uh, one in the same, that's my understanding. Um, I don't know if that helps out, but well, that's my understanding. You know, let's go to the scripture and at least look at the, uh, the son of man reference and why that's, that's so important. If you go to Matthew 26, um, and verses 63 and 64 specifically. So Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. So this is Jesus before the, for the Caiaphas, the high priest and the council. And of course, they're trying to have false witnesses against him. <laughs> Um, in fact, he just ends up speaking the truth, and that was enough to to condemn them, uh, to condemn him. Uh, but Jesus remained silent in verse sixty three, and the high priest said to him, "I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God." And Jesus said to him, "You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven." I point this out for two reasons. One, it uses both both phrases, which is interesting. I haven't actually studied the whole Son of God thing, and I don't know. Um, but I did look at the Son of Man reference because it was always a question to me: Why is when he says Son of Man, why do they get all freaked out? Right. Well, you have to tie it in all the way back to Daniel seven. So we have so we have to go back to Daniel seven. We'll look at verses uh, thirteen and seventeen particularly. Are we still in Matthew? No, we, we're we're going back to Daniel chapter seven now. Ah, so keep keep Matthew in mind, right? And you've got the high priests or all the council there. There, he said he was the son of man, and now we're going to stone him. You know, we want to kill him. And okay, he's deserving of death. So why is that? So you go back to Daniel seven and look at verses thirteen and seven, uh, and fourteen, and I saw. In the night visions, this is Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then to him, that's the son of man in verse 14, was given dominion and glory and a king kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you see, the, whoever this one is that comes before the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, he lives forever. He has a kingdom that does not end. And the implication and understanding is very, seems pretty clear is that this has to be God, right? You have a, you have a God getting a kingdom, of a throne, an everlasting throne. But this is also applied to the Christ, right? So the Messiah who's coming. So you have this, you have this pointing back to this eternal, this eternal one in, Dan, in Daniel 7. And so when he says that he's the son of man, he is, he is saying, I, I'm done. I'm here. So that's why they he were did it. to kill him. Mm-hmm. He, he did it in all kinds of ways, if you think oh, about it. Right. Jesus took every single option, that, you know, like, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? And by the way, he shared before Abraham was born, used the most glorious name, I am, of, of God. So I think that is another affirmation of Christ's boldness in, and the authenticity of who he is. I was looking at this, just FYI, this Athanasian Creed, and it has some very good statements, even though there may be some, I have to read it all, some glitches. There are some really good statements about Christ in the context of the Trinity, which was Athanasius' um, lifelong passion to um, teach. Yeah, some very good remarks. I'll make myself a note so I can look at that. <laughs> well, and and back in the day, it it was like, who are you? Are are you the next Moses? Are are you the next Peter? Are are, are you the next like who? Are are you the Messiah? Uh, we don't really believe in you, and you know, you got the Son of God down on Earth talking a bunch of craziness to people and sometimes they believe it and sometimes they didn't. I mean, ain't that the way it goes? <laughs> like sometimes you talk to people and they take the words. Sometimes you talk to people and they're like, well, I've heard this and this and that. And um, yeah, I'm not going to subscribe to what you're uh, preaching there. And it's like, but this is the way. <laughs> uh it's, uh, you know, whether it's a personal thing or trying to be a disciple to other people, um, it's a struggle. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like you look back on, on the examples of what Jesus and the apostles went through and you go, you know what? OK, at least I have an example of like it ain't going to be easy. But if this is what you want to do, here's the way. <laughs> and the Bible just lays it out for you. It's great. <laughs> yeah, and going back to the the Son of God title, you know, I never had seen it that way. Like you said, like just focusing on his human side, um, as opposed to his divine. Uh, but maybe this points more, Josh, to the um, uh, to the incarnation. Maybe that points more t- toward that. Um, but I hadn't studied any of that in particular. (laughs) 
Might might be good to uh, just kind of officially wrap the time, but I also see Daniel Falk has a question. Uh, for the sake of time, might be good to go ahead and close in prayer, but then maybe we could just keep it open a few more minutes to sure. handle more interaction, if, you, if, that, if that sounds good. Like well, I'll pray and we'll close, and then uh, there's more questions. I guess we can hang on. Uh, Heavenly Father, I do thank you again, Lord, for um, the salvation wrought in Jesus Christ, uh, the example that he is for us, the uh, representative he is before you as our mediator, as our advocate, um, as the once for all sacrifice in our place, um, the God-man who who suffered in our place, who was tempted in all ways like we are, but without sin, who rose victorious from the grave uh, to your glory and honor and to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, I just pray for each one here that was here tonight and I pray that they would continue to be encouraged uh, by the truths of your scripture. May they grow thereby in their studies and considering of your word. And may they grow in wisdom and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.